to the podcast series from Square Mile, Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Jock Glover, Strategic Relationships Director here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. In this series of podcasts, we meet members of investment teams from across the asset management industry whose funds we rate and spend 15 minutes or so chatting to them to get an insight into what they're thinking. This week, we're shaking things up. We've got two guests. We've got Mike Clements and Praz Jayanandan, who are fund managers of the £45 million Downing European Unconstrained Income Fund. The fund aims to generate income and with the potential for long-term, brackets, five years or more capital growth from European equities. And our analysts have awarded a positive prospect rating. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Morning, John. Um, guys, let's start with uh, 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 an obvious question european equities have been fairly unloved by asset allocators over the last couple of years um prez i'm going to start you where do we go from here uh, with european equities and and asset allocators not liking them very much well contrary to that we're actually really excited about europe at the moment i think we're seeing some really interesting themes develop within within european companies mike and i talk a lot about the the, the energy transition that we're seeing uh, and for a change, I think Europe is very much at the forefront of that transition theme. We're seeing a lot of companies that have been specializing in things like renewables, energy storage, electric vehicle batteries, and, 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 and developing a huge value chain to, to, to benefit from these, these, these long-term structural themes. On top of that, small caps within Europe especially have been very, very much unloved, so the valuations are particularly attractive. Uh, and we think some of these small cap companies are perfectly positioned within that value chain, within these broader themes to really start to benefit from, from some of the structural growth drivers. So we can understand why Europe has been unloved over, over, over the last decade or so, probably just in terms of politics and, and, and regulation and, and slow growth. But we think actually the, the future, the future prospects for Europe are actually very encouraging. And Mike, I suppose following on from that, you guys are quite well known for looking for almost contrarian ideas for income um, in, in Europe. Um, where, where are you finding those ideas in terms of you've obviously got these stories of the growth of how Europe's going to evolve um, with energy transition and leading the way with batteries and uh, et cetera. But uh, from, a, from an income investor's perspective, what's exciting uh, you guys? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Jock. I mean, there's two sort of ways that we look for ideas within the portfolio. And absolutely, we're well known for contrarian uh, hunting in a very contrarian way and have done uh, you know that for about a decade or so. But contrarian investing, basically, you have to react to what's going on in the market. You know, you, you can't sort of force contrarian ideas into your portfolio because by definition, something bad happens, which causes share prices to dislocate from what we think are the long-term values. And then you can try to look at those companies and, and take advantage of that. And we do that in our portfolio on a sort of um, reactive basis. So, for example, a good example is in 2022 when the Ukraine war happened. Uh, you know, obviously that caused a sort of dislocations in a number of different industries and companies. And we went and added a number of interesting ideas along that um, along that sort of uh, 
theme, if you want to call it that, uh, as a response to what was going on in the market. But actually, the bigger part of our portfolio is is more what we do on a day-to-day basis, which is essentially going up and down value chains, looking for interesting ideas uh, which are playing some long-term structural growth themes. Uh, and as Praz talked about, one of the major themes running through the portfolio today is, is this idea of energy transition. It's about 35% or so of our portfolio. And that's, you know, it's a thing which a lot of other people are playing as well. But this is this idea that what we're seeing at the moment in energy transition is probably the biggest revolution or the biggest transition that we're seeing in our in our lifetimes. And the, there's vast amounts of money being spent in very short space of time, which is creating opportunities up and down the value chains. Now, the, the tricky thing from our point of view is that, of course, if you talk about electric vehicles, you're talking about renewable energy. A lot of other people are playing these things as well. And where we spend our time is trying to find uh, parts of the value chain which are really overlooked by other investors. That's often these smaller companies that Praz uh, mentioned. Uh, and that's where we often find the uh, the more interesting value plays, uh, which can generate this sort of attractive combination of, of cash flow, which you then turns into, into income for our investors. But probably more importantly, that growth of that income stream over time as well. I think just to, just to back of that, Mike, I think a lot of income investors or the income the, the, the sector of income tends to focus very much on on some of those classic income sectors, so utilities, telcos, uh, banks, etc. I think because of the unconstrained nature of how we look for stocks, we're able to find uh, some of that income in in different parts of the market. Some of the some of them will be smaller cap companies, um, and really what we're trying to do is uh, combine that that growth that Mike has talked about with good cash flows, good balance sheets, and good income characteristics that we think actually provides a diversified income stream for clients as well. So you're looking for sort of small cap names that are providing a widget that goes into a, I don't know, a braking system for the car manufacturer. So you're not worrying about, you know, buying VW or BMW or whoever it is at the top end of that chain. It's trying to work out who, who, who's got you know, a great business model and a, and a sort of a, a moat around them and an overlooked by the market in terms of generating that cash. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. The, often it's the, those, those enablers, uh, as we would call them, that are often the most overlooked, but also the most interesting parts of, of many value chains. Uh, and the fascinating thing, I think, which is, is present in Europe right now is that because a lot of these value chains are, are sort of emerging right now, whether you're talking about renewables or you're talking about battery technology or you're talking about electric vehicles, a lot of the companies which allow that transition to happen, allow those value chains to operate are actually quite small. You know, they, they're, they're sort of emerging now. They're sort of developing their technology and they're, they're growing their business. And actually, we find that a lot of the most interesting opportunities are not in the mega caps, which are essentially big because they, they're, they're the winners of the past. The, the looking forward, the, the, the smaller companies in Europe are actually perfectly positioned with some of the best technology to take advantage of the, the vast transition that's going on right now. And that, that's essentially what I spend our days uh, looking for. I have to remember to call them enablers, not widget makers going forward. Aren't <laughs> um, so, um, and, and the fund's relatively new. I mean, you guys launched this, what, two and a half years ago? Is that about right? Was it 2020 you launched it? Yeah, we actually launched it uh, on the day of the vaccine announcement so back in uh, November oh, wow. 20, which was uh, obviously a very interesting time to be uh, to launching any new fund. But yes, yeah, so it's about two, two and a half years uh, old fund, but the, actually the strategy underpinning it and the sort of the thought process and the way we go up and down valley chains, we look for these contrarian ideas. That's sort of gone through various iterations over the last uh, 10 or 12 years now. You know, it's just a, a continuation of strategies we had in, in our previous uh, jobs. 
And so the strategy is quite old uh, and the sort of the, the ideas underpinning are quite old, but we're doing it obviously in a, in a relatively new shop, which is, uh, which is, which is Downing, which is a fantastic place to be a, a stock picker simply because of their sort of ethos uh, and, and backgrounds. And it's, uh, it's somewhere we've been uh, fitted into very well and we feel very happy there. Cool. And so I suppose my next question is, to you work as a team, how do you split up what you do in terms of a normal day doing research and portfolio building? And, you know, do you divide it up by sectors or are you both generalists? How, how do you two work together? Yeah, as, as Mike often says, this is this is 100% of the European equities team. It is it is the two of us. We've, we've worked with an analyst team before. And, and, and honestly, I think it's I think it's fair to say that Mike and I uh, work much better just the two of us. We feel very much on top of the fund. Um, and really, we, we we follow every idea from inception of that idea through to actually putting it in the fund together. So we do a lot of the work. One person will invariably lead on the financial modeling and, and, and liaising with the company management team. But it's much more efficient, we find, to, to, to work through the process together. So we'll, 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 we'll often uh, conduct this value chain analysis, which will be going up and down these value chains, looking for the best ideas, and then following through those rabbit holes to try and work out whether these stocks are investable and doing the financial work and speaking with the management. But really, it's a it's very much a team team based approach to 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 picking the stocks, running the fund, deciding on positioning. But but does one of you have to sort of do the pitch to the other to get him to buy? If you've done all the work, or is it or or is that such an ongoing discussion at the desk level? By the time you get to a point of deciding to invest or not, you're already you're already both fully up to speed on everything. Exactly. I mean, we we do all the meetings together. So, for example, actually, just before we came on this podcast, Praz and I were on a on a call with a company uh, where we we're looking at it as a potentially new idea, and we're both on that call and listening to the company, and then we'll have a discussion about it. So, it's an ongoing iterative process. And because if if you take the other way of doing it, which is if you have this siloed approach or you have a sectorial approach. And, you know, one person leads on it and then has to pitch it to the other person. The problem with that is that you, you sort of end up with a siloed portfolio. Uh, and in some ways, there's diseconomies of scale because if Pras comes to me with a great idea, he spent maybe four or five weeks working in this company. He knows it far better than I do. He knows all the background and the sector information. It's very hard for me to then challenge him. Uh, and most often what you find in reality is that you just defer to the other person and you end up with, uh, you know, two parts of the portfolio, one of which belongs to me and one which belongs to Pras, which... Which is not that healthy, I don't think, in terms of how at least how we think about it. It's not how we want to run the portfolio. We want every idea to go into the portfolio to be a joint idea where we both scrutinized it. We've been part of that journey. We've raised our concerns and addressed them along the way. And I think then you get a sort of genuine competition for places in the portfolio rather than just sort of deferring to the other person's idea. In our in our experience, it, it tends to work better if you work on these ideas together from from the get go. 35% of your portfolio, you said, is in energy transition at the moment or, or themes linked to that, going up and down that sort of value chain. Um, what else have you got running in the portfolio in terms of themes and ideas at the moment? We've got also uh, digitalization and technology that allows that digitalization. This is uh, you know, something which I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will be very familiar with. But it's the idea that we've got this growth in data, which is really exponential. You know, and, you know, it's driven firstly by the, the growth of the Internet and then driven by the growth of mobile phones. 
uh, you know, you know the, the, the emergence of 4G and now 5G and probably 6G, uh, you know, layer on the recent uh, sort of excitement around AI, this all just drives the amount of data that's going down, uh, you know, down the wires uh, and into our into our into our brains essentially, and that that's not going to slow down. In fact, that's going to only continue to grow at exponential rates. And the interesting thing there is, there's lots of ways to play that. We're playing that through technology companies. Uh, you know, which are physically making the chips. One of the more interesting companies we bought recently is a company called Soytech, which makes engineered substrates, which is a, is a, a fancy way of saying basically the chips that go into your comp- uh, computers and into your mobile phones can be more efficient and more energy efficient. And in a world where, uh, you know, we're transitioning away from fossil fuels, one of the big drivers of many companies is the ability to do what they do in a more energy efficient way. But we're also playing it through other factors. You know, we talked about these enablers you know, data centers are springing up left, right, and center. Those data centers are getting bigger and more complex. They're consuming more energy, and they've got to be cooled. Uh, and cooling of data centers is actually an incredibly important uh, thing uh, in terms of being energy efficient, but also allowing these these companies to uh, who host their equipment inside these data to actually provide the services we all come to rely on. And so we've got examples of companies which provide cooling equipment to data centers and will benefit. Uh, in I, I think in a very interesting way, in a very data agnostic way, in a way that you don't have to pick which telco company or which uh, tech company is going to win. It's just going to oh, it's a way to play the whole growth in the data space, but through an industrial company, which we think is a, a very interesting way to uh, to play that sort of theme. Roz, um what keeps you awake at night? Then you've got you've got these themes running in the portfolio, looking up and down the value chain. But do you, do you worry about the macro? Are you sitting there, you know, is is that keep you awake at night as a fund manager? Um, not not so much not so much the macro. I think as sort of Mike has made clear, I think we try and position the fund around long term opportunities. So we're we're talking about a lot of these long term these long long term secular themes, and we do a lot of that uh, the investment work and the risk analysis at, a, at, a, at an individual stock level. And we're trying to buy these stocks where we've got a lot of uh, room for error, I suppose, on, on, on the valuation side. So I don't think that's so much what keeps us awake at night. I think we're, what does maybe sometimes cause us a bit of anxiety is that, as we've discussed, we are contrarian in our nature and we are looking to, to find stocks away from the crowds, if you will. So trying to unearth some of these gems that other investors haven't found or are looking at. And that's great. You're a hero when it's working, but when 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 you are deviating away from the benchmark, having a period of underperformance, having a fund that does look very different can be quite a lonely and uncomfortable place, and you can you can very quickly become zero in in, in that sort of situation. So, um, so I think that's something that we 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 try and encourage clients to understand exactly what we're doing and and, and some of the long term benefits around having a differentiated fund in terms of. Different performance cycles and alpha, but I think that is probably one of the one of the one of the causes of anxiety is that it can be quite a lonely place when you are investing in deeply contrarian parts of the market, and it's just taking a bit longer to play out, or it's, it's a bit more complex than than some people are used to. And I, I, I mean, that requires a whole different sort of mental skill set to be able to be different from the rest of the market and have that conviction despite what might be going on. At what point do you? recognize you've got it wrong sometimes is that is that something that comes out you know uh, what what changes it what when you say i've held it for two and a half years i thought it was all going to be okay but now i can't actually cope with this any longer is there normally something that triggers that yeah i think it's such go like you go Oh, sorry. I think we're probably going to say the same thing because we're we're one team, one brain. <laughs> <laughs> i think I think what Praz is probably going to say, and, and certainly I think it's the case is 
because we run a concentrated portfolio of 30 to 40 names, we know these companies very, very well. We, we, we spend a lot of time before we buy these companies into the portfolio, just understanding the companies and their position in the value chain. And as a consequence of that, we, we understand the risks before we invest. And so normally there's sort of two, three sort of uh, important parts of that investment case, which we monitor constantly. And as you would imagine with the stock pickers, if if that investment case gets off track because of, we've made an assumption how this company or industry is going to develop and it's, it's going in a different way, then of course you've got to recognise that and uh, and and take action in the portfolio. And actually, one of the things we're we're very keen on is. Uh, how do you deal with mistakes in the portfolio? Things you, you, in hindsight, you wish you hadn't bought because it's not playing out in the way that you expected. And that requires, I think, two things. I think it requires intellectual honesty. Uh, it's very hard for uh, fund managers to admit they're wrong. <laughs> and I know this from, from personal experiences that, you know, by, by nature, fund managers tend to be stubborn uh, because if you're going to have a, a contrarian position in your portfolio, you're obviously taking a bet against the crowd. So often you've got to have high conviction to go into that stock. And it, it's it's quite hard sometimes to actually admit that you're wrong and that this investment case is not playing out as well as you, you hoped. And we have ways of, of dealing with that in terms of what we do when things uh, don't work out. Uh, how would we react in the portfolio? What extra work do we do? But I think it also comes down to the relationship you have between myself and Price. You know, going back to this idea that we look at these ideas together, it's a joint decision. You know, when we buy something to the portfolio, it's a joint decision. So it avoids that whole blame game is your stock that went wrong or my stock that went wrong. And that allows us to objectively look at these, these companies uh, and investment cases and then take what we think are hopefully best decisions at any given point in time. Um, and that, that's, that's, I think that's the very important thing. It comes down to the culture and the working relationship you have, um, between you as a team. I think the other thing though is, is more of a, a sort of company level thing, which is where I think Downing is really very, very good is by definition, what we set out to do in a fund like ours is, is to add value by just look, by having different ideas and complementing what a lot of more mainstream funds, uh, do. And to do that successfully, we are going to look very, very different to indices and to many other competitors' funds. Not, not better, not, not worse, but just, just different. And uh, what you need from a company point of view, from a downing point of view, is you need to have this sort of buy-in from senior management and your bosses that actually our performance uh, is going to be different for the market. Sometimes uh, you know, we're going to lag, but over time we think we can outperform. And you need a management team that backs you and understands that and actually encourages you to to provide those kind of solutions to your clients and that's that's exactly what we have at downing uh, so you need you need the 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 company backdrop if you want to be correct and also the dynamics within your team to be correct to be able to take the actions in the portfolios when things don't work out uh, quite as you want them to cool i'm conscious of time so i'm going to ask you one final question and normally it's only one person so it's normally one statistic but it- What's an interesting or or useful statistic that you've come across in the last week in your in your your travels, your work, your research? And I suppose because there's two of you, I'll have to let you each have one if you want. If you if you only got one between the two of you because you're one team, one brain, that's fine. But uh, if you've got if you've got two statistics, let's have them. You go, Mike. We we have actually got two statistics. Um, yeah, sticking on the data theme, um, we we were at a, uh, we were in a conference call with uh, Teleperformance, uh, one of our holdings this week, and they they had at the very end of their slides a fascinating statistic, which is comes from statistic, which is that ninety percent of all data uh, that has existed in history has been created in the last two years, and that seems an amazing stat 
And we, again, 90% of all data that's ever existed in history has been created in the last two years. Yeah. And we looked into that and uh, it's quite hard to verify, but it looks correct and it probably feels correct just given the sort of exponential data creation curve that you look at. But it's an amazing statistic that caught my eye. Um, yeah. And it, it makes sense. You know, you've got 5G, AI, you yeah. know, everyone's on their phones all the time streaming stuff. Yeah. It, it's it, it's uh, it's probably true, but it's just if it's just an amazing statistic which caught my eye and that statistic is held, that statistics is held firm sorry that statistics hold firm every year for the last few years so that on a rolling basis it exponentially goes up it's just exponentially yeah. going up and i think that continues to be the case which is so you've got to have a, a belt of a statistic to beat that one i've got to say i, I actually don't unfortunately it is, it's still it's still a very big number so obviously we've talked a lot about this energy transition theme um and uh, in the last year a uh, trillion dollars was spent globally on energy transition. And, and Mike and I were sort of struggling to gauge that and put some context around that. But that's essentially the size of, I think it was Spain, we agreed. Um, but to get to the net zero targets that everyone's hoping we get to by 2030, that needs to increase about three to four times around $4 trillion, which is sort of around the size of or the GDP of Germany. So it just gives a sense of how much how much capital is being spent in this in this entire theme, which is, I suppose, why we're so excited about it. Okay, well that explains why two of your biggest themes in the portfolio are energy transition and <laughs> then, doesn't it? Um, all that remains is for me, Jock Glover, to thank today's guests, Mike Clements and Praz Jay Anandan, fund managers at Downing, for their thoughts and insights today, and you, the listeners, for your support. If you'd like to contact us please do so via either at our webpage, squaremileresearch.com, or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremore Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremore makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremore at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.